is when a resource stops being used it becomes a weed mm. and there is no word called weed in the tribal language saw that the wild rice varieties were present in the areas where they were consumed and in the places which were away from uh, these forests closer to cities uh, urbanized modernized and not practicing traditional knowledge that same wild rice which was edible became a weed and mm-hmm. everybody was removing it without acknowledging the use welcome to the wild herbs podcast where we unpack and uncover the healing properties of wild herbs so you can heal naturally with the plants beneath your feet. I am your host, April Ponsalon, wild untamed plant lady, also a botanist and ethnobotanist and herbalist dedicated to teaching you how to heal with plants. If you want to learn edible and medicinal plants, you are in the right place, my friend. Welcome, Nishant. I'm so excited to interview you. And I really am grateful for your time. For the listeners, Nishant is an ethnobotanist and has a lifelong love for plants and studying the relationship between plants and people. Nishant, can you tell us how your connection with plants started? Maybe you can tell the audience what is ethnobotany? Thank you so much, April, first of all, for having me here. I'm so happy to interact with you and your listeners. To begin with, it's a very special thing I do. It's not just a subject of my career. It's something that I have been fascinated since my childhood. Ethnobotany scientifically is basically a relationship of people and plants. But for me, it's from the experience, any kind of association that any kind of local community creates with the flora of their surroundings in any kind of through any kind of mediums like folk songs be that for health education spirituality when there is a part of a plant involved i consider that as ethnobotany and it can be mixed along with other other things like non-plant materials and in your country because nishant is from india And can you tell us what part of India? Because India is such a big country. And my husband always jokes me I'm bad with geography. So I don't remember exactly which part of India, but can you tell us which part of India and maybe how that influenced? Because I feel like in India, people have such a strong connection with sense of place and the plants. So I was actually born in a small town. But I was brought up in a city because my family had to move a city called Bangalore in the southern part of India. It's the capital of uh, state Karnataka. It's the IT capital of India now. So I was brought up in a pretty, let's say, advanced city atmosphere. There was not much plant use compared to the other parts of villages of India. What connected me to plants was during my summer holidays, my family and me, uh, we used to go to my grandmother's village. It was a ritual because my mom, she wanted to meet her mom. So we had to go to the village. I spent every summer with my grandmother. Sometimes we used to forget our toothpaste. Sometimes I used to forget my soap. Sometimes I used to forget something to eat. 
So then out of curiosity, I used to ask my grandmother, what do you use for brushing your teeth? What do you use when you, because there are no shops, there are no grocery stores. There's no Tesco, <laughs> McDonald's nearby. People need to be very self-reliant in whatever they do. So I was curious, how do you wash your clothes? My grandmother showed me a fruit and she showed me the tree first. And she said, do you see that fruit on that tree? And I was like, okay, uh, what do you do with that? And then she said, all you do is wait for the fruit to ripe. It becomes yellowish when it becomes mature. You harvest it, then you dip it in hot water, the hot water, and then you wash the clothes. And she literally showed me washing the clothes with that. And I saw the foam coming. I saw the lather coming, just like how from soaps you get a little bit relatively less, but you got it. I was so fascinated by her knowledge, first of all. And secondly, how self-reliant people can be. And uh, it's an adventure. Buying a soap is an adventure in a village. Every morning, my, Bobby, my, my grandmother, she was going to the street, plucking the goats and sheep loved this fruit, by the way. So she used to feed them also. There is also a study now on this fruit. It's Egyptia from the family Egyptia. It's called breadfruit in English. Yeah, I think it grows in Jamaica. Yes, there is one species growing in India. So my curiosity for ethnobotany began with my grandmother's stories about plants. Mm. It began with this plant. And then I started asking about, so what did you do when you were sick when you were a child? Because there were no hospitals, there were no doctors. So she started telling me about plants. I was like, show me this plant. I want to see this plant. And she was excited to show me because nobody asks her about this and uh, that's how it began so I was looking forward for summer holidays just to learn more about plants with my grandmother and my great-grandmother actually was some like a like a doctor not a doctor but a healer midwives basically these are in India not everywhere there were hospitals in the past so somebody had to help in the delivery of the babies right so she also used to tell me plants that she used for menstrual health care, pregnancy. So she was like a book of plants, basically. And I was a listener. So that's how it began. And I was fortunate to find a, a course in my bachelor's, which had uh, botany in it. And ultimately, I saw that under botany, there's something ethnobotany which is about people and plants. I was like, oh my God, this is what I'm doing since my childhood. And I just didn't realize it. So I was like, I'm going to go into something around ethnobotany. So I was like, wow, there's a field like this that exists. There are people who can work on this. So let me get into that. That's how I joined my bachelor's and I did my master's on conservation of plants using ethnobotany. And now I'm doing my, doing my PhD. Congratulations. And how yeah. old were you when you started learning from your grandmother? I was about, let's say, eight or nine. It began very early. Wow, that is really early. Eight or yeah. nine. That's interesting. Yeah. Here in the low country, the basket makers, the Gullah Geechee basket makers start learning around six, seven, eight. Exactly. It's been such a long time since we spoke. Yeah, I remember getting connected with you before we get started. I want to say that I was really inspired by the work that you do because I was looking at some of your reels and I saw that 
this is a very important part of taking ethnobotany forward, especially in a country where your indigenous knowledge was disappeared, you no longer have it. And that's actually one of the questions that an American uh, colleague asked me when they visited our university, saying, we don't have traditional knowledge, so what do we do? And that's when I thought of you, where you are basically experimenting with plants, connecting people with plants, doing the stuff that was done probably a thousand years ago by my ancestors. That's how people know about plants, right? You experiment and experiment. The only thing is you need to document that probably which didn't happen with your with the indigenous knowledge of America. And I really appreciate your efforts for that, for doing that. I'm pretty sure it's going to go a long way. Oh, thanks. During my studies, I observed this two villages. Now, urbanization is taking over the villages of India at a very fast, rapid pace as we are speaking. So I saw a village which was isolated from the cities, far away in between forests. And I saw this wild rice varieties growing. Mm. Or most of the rice that we eat is cultivated rice. But in India, there is also wild rice varieties, especially in the eastern part, northeastern part. I saw that the wild rice varieties were present in the areas where they were consumed. And in the places which were away from uh, these forests, closer to cities, uh, urbanized, modernized, and not practicing traditional knowledge, that same wild rice, which was edible, became a weed. And mm-hmm. everybody was removing it without acknowledging the use. And that's when, it, that's when I observed that there is a direct impact of ethnobotany and use because it's human psychology, right? Anything, if you don't have a connection with it, forget about plants, anything that you don't have a connection with, You will not care for it. You will not value it. And also it's beautiful. The connection is not just for the use of it. Mm. It's actually consumed. There are different rules to consume this wild rice. You can only consume this wild rice when you are fasting. In India, people do these fasts. And so the cultural practice is this. When you do this particular fast, the tribal communities are not supposed to consume anything that is from a land which is plowed, you know which is not from a agricultural land, but a wild plant. So they can only break their fast using a wild plant. That's why when these wild rice varieties grow near forest areas, usually they grow near aquatic because rice, it needs a moisture. So they, and the, if they see it on the way, they will not just uh, remove it as a weed. So it's even as there are papers on this is when a resource stops being used, it becomes a weed. Mm. And there is no word called weed in the tribal language. They don't wow. have a word called weed. There, there's no word. in This is a Western word that weed, what is weed? Weed means non-useful plants. They don't have a word for weed. I love that. Isn't it amazing how much the language itself talks about their perspective? I'm also working on language that is folk taxonomy. Folk taxonomy is about how local people name plants, classify plants based on their habitat, based on their properties, and also how their language, the perspective of the language plays an impact on the plant use. So I am now working with linguists who are helping me 
figure out what these names mean, if there are categories, because the botanical classification, I really respect it, but there is also another system, system which has not been codified yet. So we are working on codifying it and trying to understand if there are linkages, which there are. It's a very interesting, fascinating world. That's oh. a big project, figuring yeah. indigenous taxonomy system. Because yeah. there is a system, like you're saying, yeah. it's just not the Linnaean system, right? The yeah. genus and the Pacific epithet system. Mm-hmm. Um, when you said there's no word for weed, I could see a book coming out. No word for weed. <laughs> <laughs> like the indigenous people here, it didn't have a word for trash. And yeah. I remember the first time reading that and being like, do you imagine that world? No word for weed, no word for trash. You know, everything is respected. Everything is treasured. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just says a lot about the system. The system was so holistic that they didn't need these labels. Can you tell us a little bit about your field work? Well, uh, I uh, will take this opportunity to invite you to join me maybe for my field work. I'm always short of uh, good botanists and taxonomists because I'm not that a great taxonomist. And taxonomists are so rare these days. Yeah. They are, the, the knowledge of the skill of identifying plants is a very amazing skill to have. So feel free to pack your bags and come to India. I'll tell you the dates. But coming to the part about my PhD, well, it began during my master's because during my master's, I went there in this area, the state where I'm, I'm doing my PhD is called the Chhattisgarh state of India, where the highest uh, amount of tribal people live. Uh, these are the Gond people coming from the word Gondwana. Uh, Gondwana uh, called for these lands, you know, when all the continents were together, it was called Gondwana lands. So these tribal communities, they claim that they are one of the first tribal communities to inherit uh, you know, into in, uh, in, in India, they are very ancient, like you said. So during my master's, I was doing the pilot study on uh, the craftsmen, what all they make for livelihood, just for livelihood, what all they sell, how they rely on forest products for their basic livelihood. So I was doing studies on bamboo crafts, on uh, different kinds of uh, food products that they sell, honey, alcohol from different kinds of plants. So it's like spirits and medicines. During that process, I learned the language of the local community, which was a little similar to Hindi, which is another language in, which is in India. I've been lucky to know many languages because I was brought up in the southern part of India. So I know six languages. I know Hindi, Tamil, Kannada, Marathi, Telugu, and uh, Tamil. So these were the six languages. So, and languages in India are connected. So it was easy for me to figure out their language. And I learned it. And I chose to go back to the same region for my PhD because I found a research gap, which was nobody has studied that region's, documented that region's wild herbs uh, and wild tubers that the tribal communities there consume, especially focusing on how they harvest it how they actually go to the forest, how they harvest it. Do they have any strategies? Do they have any methodologies? How do they identify plant? And second objective is folk taxonomy. Mm-hmm. How do they name these plants? What do these names mean? Is there a network between names? Are there categories between names? 
And third is about biodiversity conservation is how these two is the knowledge of harvesting, knowledge about plants, use of plants, and naming these plants based on their habitats. How do these two objectives lead to biodiversity conservation? Biodiversity conservation is something that is the need of the hour without yes. any doubt, uh, according to me, because there is a rapid loss of flora across the world. So I was, I'm interested in how ethnobotany can contribute to biodiversity conservation. It's very intricately linked. So my last field visit was uh, from December 2022 to May 2023. It lasted for around three to four months. I was living with uh, tribal communities. I was living with shamans. I was living with healers, farmers, these shepherds, for example, because the region that I'm doing my study is in called Bastar region of Chhattisgarh. So there are different, even these tribes have sub-tribes. So each of these sub-tribes have different occupations. So I had to live with each of them. For me, it's simple. When I go to, when I go for my research, it's not a interview like, what is this plant? What is that plant? But that right. is right. robotic. If somebody comes to me and asks me, what is this bus? Is this, uh, uh, you know, something that's very normal for me? Like, uh, how, do, how do you go to Google and search for that word? I'm like, why are you asking me that? It's so simple. Everybody knows that. You need to be very sensitive with local communities. Mm-hmm. They're going to be, first of all, you need to be a part of their family. You need mm-hmm. to work with them. You need to work in their farms. And then sort of introduce yourself that, listen, you know, give them a global perspective that traditional knowledge is disappearing at a very fast rate. You guys, you know, you have this amazing amount of knowledge. And this is what happened. Even I give America's example that Mm -hmm. how you uh, don't have access to your ancestors' knowledge. And when I say that, they are so scared. They're like, oh, we, we don't want our future. We don't want our future to be the same. So they then become serious about it. And then I make friends. It's all about bonding with them, eating with them, celebrating with them. And when, while you're doing this, you need to be, you need your ethnobotanist to be awake. You need to see observation, observation parts. It's called participatory observation, right? It's a research methodology that you use. So randomly, spontaneously ask them. But most of my data is from observation. If I have some questions, I ask them in a very non-interview sort of way so that it feels spontaneous. Mm -hmm. But obviously, they are aware that I'm here for research. And uh, during my previous field work, I documented around 100 wild edible plants. These include cubers, fruits, flowers, herbs, shrubs, climbers, roots. So most of them belong to these yams, the Dioscoria family. Because the, this region is from the central region, has dry deciduous forest in which these yams grow really well. But in India, the, there are these very, very strong seasons. There's a very strong summer season. There's a very strong rainy season. Rainfall is very heavy. So based on the season availability, I was there during summer season. So tubers were available very well. Herbs were not available because, you know, herbs grow well when there's good moisture. Mm -hmm. So after the rainy season, which is going to be my next field visit, I go every season. Every season I document because I need to identify the plant. So the plant has to be there. 
So somebody told me that you should come during a rainy season. We have a lot of these herbs. Sometimes local communities, they don't necessarily remember the name. They only remember the name after seeing the plant. So because it doesn't exist as a list in their mind, it exists as a as a life thing, you know, it's like they connect with the plant. So they bond with it. So only when they see it, they start using it. That's when they are more aware of the names and stuff like that. It doesn't come to their mind because there's so many things going on. So I'm looking forward to the next trip, which is going to be for any season. I got these 100 wild edible plants and most of them are tubers and there are fruits. But I've also recorded their local names. So yeah, I'm excited to do the next part of my field visit, which is going to be in the rainy season. So yeah. That's amazing. A hundred plants. And so do you notice how many wild herbs are they eating in a day? Like if you thought about their breakfast, lunch, and dinner, how much plants do you think they're eating? Diversity. Uh, uh, I can't give an exact number, but I can say that whenever I used to visit forests with them, they have a lot of these wild herbs as snacks, as if they're going for a walk, they will just pluck a leaf, they will chew on it. They brush their teeth with twigs with the neem twig, uh, which is Azadi Rakta Indica. It's very common. This was something so amazing I found. So I was living with the tribal community. Every day, the grandmother had a different toothbrush from a different plant. Monday, it was from neem plant. Tuesday, it was from rose plant. Wednesday, it was from hibiscus plant. Thursday, it was from a climber called Bohemia. It's amazing the diversity. of. I love diversity. I love it that they don't have to uh, brush their teeth with the same brand every single day, you know, so. That is so amazing. amazing. Yeah. That is yeah. Amazing. How do they get in between their teeth though? I mean, are they able to get anything in between like a floss? Or do they fray the branch and use it frayed? Or is there a particular technique? Yes, there's a technique. So the thing is, if you have, if you have seen a twig of in these toothbrushes that these people use, the main ingredient is the juice of the plant, which is astringent which is what you need for your teeth cleaning, right? You need something astringent. You need something that cleans your teeth as a juice. And then they chew it. The thing is, they don't brush their teeth, they chew it. So the juice goes across their teeth. And it's all so natural, like people brush their teeth, chew on plants while they're walking to the farms. Uh, They don't have to use any paste. uh, But slowly the tradition is changing these kind of uses. But I would say that every, let's say, if they have three meals in a day, two meals have wild edible plants in them, either tubers, flowers, for example. In summer months in India, flowers are flowering very well. So they are eating the flower. Did you know that Moringa, the flower, is edible? Oh, yeah, that's awesome. I've never eaten a Moringa flower, but that's... Yeah, we always thought. Yeah, like whitish yellow. Yes, yes, exactly. We always, I always thought, in fact, in the southern part of India, my grandmother, she used to only eat the fruit. But then these people said, no, even the flower is edible. And then I was like, wow, this is like kind of like a proof that these are very ancient tribes because they have interacted a lot with the forest. Because only when you interact at such a level, you will know the use of fruit, you will know the use of a seed, you will know the use of these small things that are left out in societies which have not experimented that much. 
so so that's what i found majority of their uh, diets have wild edible plants in them sometimes they even all the three meals are from wild ed- in the rainy after rainy season when there's more grasses it's completely based on wild uh, the kitchen is in the forest basically so yeah that's awesome i love that yeah. i love that and so with the flowers are they eating them like in a salad or are they just eating them like a snack like you're saying or do they do anything else like dry and powder them or anything there is one interesting flower that i found and there are studies on this it's called woodfordia fruticosa you just they uh, there are different ways to consume it you can just suck the nectar out of it it's so sweet so it's taken as a dessert after after you know eating something they go to the forest and one tribal this is how ethnobotany is created one way is he told me that our ancestors saw that the birds are uh, sucking the nectar on that a lot like they saw a lot of birds around that plant so they were like wow maybe we should try that so they started seeing that oh wow there's a very nice nectar so flowers nectars are used they produce sugar out of uh, some flowers oh it's, wow yeah it's madhuka indica yeah not sugar let's say sweeteners these right, are sweet right right these are sweet, sweetening agents the area that i'm working in the madhuka indica is a tree that grows a lot so it's like a staple flower over there they create sweeteners out of it they create uh you know staple food out of it they boil the flowers they eat the flowers raw they wow. also have different sweets that they make out of these flowers so it's it's a mixture like there are different ways in using these flowers it depends on uh, which flower it is do you when you were talking about the connection to the forest and how they're interacting with the forest and i know you have that plant conservation background like have you reflected on how important our connection is with plants and the forest and and how that keeps us to how that contributes to our spiritual and mental and physical health that's so important with our body being a microcosm of the earth you know and that that connection is beneficial for both parties can you maybe talk about how you've witnessed that yes totally the most vital the most beautiful aspect that i saw in terms of how these people conserve these plants is there are something called sacred groves sacred forests now tribal communities have gods which are very different from the gods that exist in the modern world urban world they basically worship their ancestors which they believe are in the form of plants and trees they believe that their ancestors are living in these forests and they ca- they are basically labeling these forests as sacred forests because they know that the spirit of the ancestors resides in the forest so nobody is allowed to cut the trees in those forests mm. it's prohibited to cut trees in that forests because they believe that it's the garden of their ancestors wow so this is an entire concept called sacred groves in india and this is a some research done on this and i have actually discovered i discovered 10 sacred groves in one village like these sacred groves are patches forest patches these people they recognized which forests are the most diverse and dense wow. and that one for the future they decided to ensure that 
they are not completely cut so they ensured that the tradition continues and even today till date they worship the trees and the, the even the small shrubs in the forest so nobody harms them and secondly it's so amazing how they connect with the plant because when we think of using a plant we just think of going and plucking it the fruit or the leaf or something like that but the shaman he told me that for certain plants he told me that the energies are sensitive so he told me that on a full moon day he would follow certain rituals so that it doesn't disturb the balance of the energy of the plant there are some things that might be weird for the modern world like you know he told me that he harvests some plants without any clothes on because he he does not want any element to disturb the natural connection between him and the plant there are different processes that shamans have to to harvest plants medicinal plants especially there are of course plants which people harvest just like that but most of the time there is a lot of knowledge behind when do you go to collect a plant science now is sort of proving what traditional wisdom was doing for hundreds of years so it's a very deep connection just beyond the use you know that's what I, that's what i found with the tribal communities that's beautiful if you take your clothes off and you go harvest a plant it's humbling primal that reverence i feel like that's what's missing a lot in modern society that reverence for plants and that's what the indigenous people in north america had that reverence that you're speaking yeah. of knowing when to harvest there's one plant i work with um or did a lot of research on life everlasting and the indigenous people would face east when they would harvest it you know and right. harvest it when the sun would rise and right sing, you know and then going to brazil and watching the indigenous people the huni queen harvest plants and there's a whole song there's always like a yeah. chanting song and yeah yeah yeah, there's an entire process. There's a celebration. Yeah. My goodness, there's the, it, you feel you feel uh, connected with the plant. You don't look at it as a resource. Mm. You look at it as a part of you, and the and you and the plant being part of the universe. You know, so you are uh, you are uh, conscious of the energies of you, the plant, and the universe. So every every methodology, all the processes are respecting these. sensitive energies existing out there and the drums the when the, the chants like i said the there are the shepherds for example they sing a song so i was documenting the sh- knowledge of shepherds and before i go into that there are two kinds of knowledge systems in india how ethnobotany exists one is the codified system which is ayurveda the siddha which the the ancestors wrote down in manuscripts what they learned what they observed what they saw which is also amazing but i am more interested because now this is already codified but there is another system called the non codified system which is oral traditions which the ancestors they transferred the knowledge orally through stories through music through festivals through uh, i don't know poems so these shepherds they are illiterate people and when i was going with them they started singing this song and it goes like this kando bachi karbarina jhali bhanu dhangarina 
खंडोबाची कारबारी ना झाली भानो धनगरी दगडीचा पाला रे तू चेचून चेचून लावून घेरा दुःख दूर होतील दुःख दूर होतील जय देवा जय देवा जय सो बेसिकली थँक यू सो बेसिकली दिस सॉंग इट हॅज अ वाइल्ड हर्ब दॅट ग्रोज ओनली इन दॅट स्टेट द ट्रायडॅक्स फ्रॉम द ट्रायडॅक्स जीनस it's the leaves of this plant are crushed and applied on wounds they don't wear boots they don't have expensive shoes usually they get they get hurt by stones and stuff like that and thorns for example when they have a bleeding wound all they have to do is crush the leaves of this plant and put it put the juice on that healing on the wound and mm. it used to heal that's what my grandmother said and that's how they remember it they don't have they don't have rule books like if you get hurt you need to apply this it's very boring for them it doesn't exist like that they, they will be very bored if somebody told the youth they are they want to like okay i want to remember this i'm going to remember it as a song and i also like it and i enjoy it so <laughs> it it was a lot of fun listening to how they transfer this traditional knowledge so that, that that's what i'm talking about is how traditional knowledge and ethnobotany does not exist isolated especially in india it exists as a part of something or it ex- it is expressed as a part of something it's there and it's expressed through music through stories through folk songs through festivals you know when i see i for i live in i have lived in a cities but even in cities in india people celebrate festivals so there are these markets right where not the market that we go to the supermarket open markets where they sell vegetables and stuff these markets have the highest level of diversity of plants when a festival comes up because people want to eat that thing because it's a part of their culture mango leaves for example mango probably mango obviously yeah. you have eaten the mango fruit the leaves of mango are used as like a decoratory thing on the on the door i think i sent you even some pictures on the doors and now studies are showing that they are antibacterial so mm. the mango leaves for example and neem leaves neem leaves are now used in a lot of anti pesticide stuff and i had to consume neem leaves which are so bitter but my mom forced me to eat neem leaves no matter how much i hated it saying that it's a festival they made they made a celebration so i was like okay i want to be a part of the celebration so i'm going to eat it you know it's it's reverse psychology you know if you tell your kids do this they're never going to do that yeah, never they they're going to in fact they're going to be like we are not going to do that exactly but if you create an atmosphere of celebrating it if you create music if you create mythologies stories add some recipes some tasty things they're going to be like we want it too because there is this human tendency to always be a part of the community you know that's what i think our ancestors realized so they were like we are going to teach our future the use of plants through a way that they can celebrate it so festivals are an amazing way to transfer ethnobotanical knowledge not just in india but everywhere i see that even in europe now i'm currently in prague and i never let go of my curiosity for traditional knowledge so even here i find that people eat a particular herb on christmas so mm-hmm. and there are other regional festivals that they use a particular twig 
So festivals were a very interesting way to know about plants. The people here, they use willow plant in the Czech Republic. They use it on particular day. Uh, they call it the pomlaska and it only grows. And there's a tradition where they have to use only that plant. Now they call it Easter now. Before it existed as a different pagan festival mm -hmm. uh, that the Celts used to do. The Celts used to practice it and the, the, the Slavic people used to practice it. And after Christianity came, I think they were like, okay, I mean, they just included it. Uh, that's what, that's the power of festivals that no matter how much, that's the resilience of ethnobotanical knowledge when it's preserved in, in these kind of ways. No matter how much you push it away, it's going to come back. Because it's that powerful when you give it a spiritual connection, when you give it a, you know, a connection with uh, something to celebrate with. You cannot, uh, you cannot conserve or practice ethnobotany in books. It's, it's not possible. Well, it's one part, but uh, the most important thing would be to practice it and practice it in a way that people smile and uh, celebrate and laugh and have fun with it. I love that. I love that. Yeah. yeah, I always tell people that the connection with the plant is half the medicine. Because if you form a connection with the plant, that's going to benefit you in so many ways. Yeah. Uh, how do you see ethnobody evolve? And how do you think it can help people in modern countries? Because people are suffering so much with illness and disconnection from themselves, mind and body disconnection and the earth, you know, we're in the earth six massive extinction as humans overall across the globe, we're getting more disconnected and not more connected. How do you think plants and people can come together again? And how do you think that would change our current status? That's a, that's a very important uh, point that you just brought that how ethnobotany can, you know, move forward. And for me, I am actually so lucky that something that I was so passionate about, I can do something and contribute to that. Because uh, when I saw that this field exists, I was really happy over the top, over the moon, because I was like, what else do I need? But I need to give justice to this subject because there's so much to do. To begin with, I would really like to reach out to as many people as possible to tell them that there's something called ethnobotany, there's something called relationship between plants and people. They are sort of subconsciously aware of it, uh, but they are, they are not. Uh, completely aware and by doing that they are losing a lot of traditional knowledge for example if every person in India today got to know that this, there's this thing called traditional knowledge ethnobotany they would at least talk to their grandmothers and save some of that knowledge mm -hmm. every grandmother that goes passes away without sharing her knowledge is like a library burning it's so bad you know the amount I got I had an entire diary filled because of my grandmother. So you're talking about millions and millions of diaries about ethno, about plants. So these ancestors are not just grandmothers, even grandfathers, older people, their wisdom. Uh, so first is I want to reach out to people, which is why I conduct also a webinar where I invite experts from different fields, from ethnobotany who are doing different uh, work. And I talk and I, I put that on YouTube also. If people are interested, they can check yeah. it out. 
I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. It's called the it's called the International Ethnobotany Research Webinar Series, where I invite people like Nancy Turner. She's an ethnobotanist. She has been there. There are other ethnobotanists across the world from India, Europe. So these people, they sort of explain what their work is to normal people in layman terms. Nice. Right. Uh, so that's one thing that I want to do. Second thing is because it's a scientific thing, I want to specialize on a particular subject like folk taxonomy, for example, really, really fascinates me because not much work has been done on local names. Botanical nomenclature has such good classification, like it has everything, but the local communities have their own ways of classifying things. So I would be interested in spending a lot of time understanding the classification system that local people follow understand it and probably represent even their knowledge system to the world because even that is also knowledge and uh, probably that might help the world to understand identifying plants or classifying plant in a different way but it is a way so that's one thing and you know ethnobotany is such dynamic sort of field it keeps it has to keep evolving which is what which is what is important evolving when I say adapting is uh, is people uh, need to realize that the world is changing now so I think people need to come together you know botanists ethnobotanists forestry people biodiversity conservation ecologists I think there is I respect the scientific field a lot for the efforts for what they do but I think somewhere we need to understand that we are all in this together, you know. We all need to come under a common roof and address problems uh, that, uh, that our future generation uh, might uh, face and sort of try to think, brainstorm on solutions. But forget everything that separates us, but keep in mind what unites us. That is the passion for nature. And, uh, and plants are a big part of that. So I would really be interested in these three things, that is communicating about ethnobotany, understanding more about folk taxonomy. But yeah, there is this lifelong dream of being a part of a community and living there forever. Nice. But then, yeah, but then there's also like, I feel like the I need to be both ways connected globally because now uh, these communities are no longer isolated. Everywhere there's internet. So you need, wow. to, you need to understand the perspective of the global perspective and the local perspective. So uh, probably if I would, uh, I don't know, be uh, somewhere along those lines, I'd be very happy. But most importantly, I want to have fun doing it. Yeah. Uh, which is what ethnobotany is all about and uh, it's like my one of my local uh, communities they told me a story is how do you know that a plant is medicinal like he asked me this question how do you know and I was like I don't know you need to I don't know you have interacted with more he's like here's the thing there is no plant that is not medicinal Every plant is medicinal in its own way. Every plant has a story to tell. So no matter how much of knowledge we have gathered, no matter how much of research there's been done, there's a lot that's left to be done. There's a lot of chocolate boxes. There are a lot of chocolates that are going to come back. So every plant 
has a story to tell whether people call it weed whether people call it crop whether they call it wild herbs you need to probably you people might know that plant but you can go and interact with that plant and see if you can create a new use out of it i don't know you might create a new tradition so that's how ethnobotany evolves you know you need to keep interacting interacting and that's how that's how you give justice to that plant you build more connection with that plant and that's how you build a holistic connection for you know you the plant and the universe so i guess that's the most uh, important thing uh, according to me so yeah i hope i hope that i hope that i'm on the right track and i really hope that uh, uh i also pray all the time that uh, all the people who are involved in this that they get uh, we get where we are going and that uh, we are in this together which is why i was so happy to connect with you and your listeners today and i'm more than happy to uh, you know get connected anytime they wish because we are all in this together yes well i really um love how you said every plant has a story to tell that yeah, yeah every plant has a story to tell and there's 4000 plants with stories <laughs> in south carolina uh, yeah. and so but you know, focusing on a few and building that interaction. And you said that so beautifully, like paint, you know, focusing on the interaction, maybe yes. you'll find a new use, you know, yeah. maybe you listening will find a plant that you're attracted to, mm -hmm. right. And discover yeah. its properties and work with it and teach people Yeah, and then protect it. Um, exactly. so yeah, I love that. Every plant has a story to tell. That was beautiful. And so, yes, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Well, all they have to do is they have to catch a boat and they have to swim all the way to India and they'll find me in a village. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, well, I am pretty much active socially. I'm, act I'm there on Instagram. You can give them my Instagram handle. I'm there on email. People can email me. I I'm pretty much check my email regularly, especially if you put the topic of ethnobotany or just say hi. Uh, you can put out my LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on that. So yeah, I am leaving no st uh, stone unturned <laughs> so, to connect with people and talk about uh, talk about this uh, subject and this, I would say, beautiful way of life. I think ethnobotany is just a beautiful way of life. I have this webinar series going on. People can watch it, know more about the parts of the world. I also am interested to know about your work if anyone wants to send their work people can find my work i'm going to be publishing my data soon so hopefully you'll find it also in journals but it's going to be a little boring so i i hope that's okay but i actually like i said i have my linkedin where i instagram where i post stories about tribal communities you can find uh, in in these uh, three social media pages connect me from anywhere and I'd be more than happy to connect back and start a new story about plants. Nice. I appreciate your time and energy. Before we go, I wanted to go back to our conversation about how in America, one in three people have cancer, but mm -hmm. in India, one in nine. And yes. you were talking about how some of these village members, they don't even talk about cancer and that they're a hundred years old and they're super active and fit. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about that and inspire us to stay fit into our hundreds? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, to be honest, I have I've been interacting with these communities for three three plus years now, three to four years now, and when I see someone old, it's so difficult to guess their age. Because someone in their 80s or 90s will be working in the farm, will be climbing trees, will be doing work that even teenagers or people in their 30s can't do in the cities. Uh, so I didn't see a single obese person in the past four years of my research work in wow. these tribal. Can you imagine? Not a single obese person. I was probably the only healthy person around. And I never meant, I never heard them mentioning about this colleague died out of cancer or we didn't know what he died out of. There are other issues, but I have never heard someone like, like I said, you know, the average age itself is between 85 to 100, sometimes even more. I have interacted with a grandmother who was 105, 106 years old. And she actually, after talking to me, she was like, I need to go back to work now. I need to go pluck some flowers. So that's actually keeping her alive, her spirits alive. That is her connection with nature. When she walks in the forest without, uh, you know, when she lets her feet touch the soil of the ground, she's been doing that for an entire decade, a hundred years. And and I see her feet. There are no cracks on her feet. There are no wrinkles. There's no makeup, but she's so beautiful. You know, it's not just about cancer, but it's, entire health the entire holistic life their entire skin their fitness everything is i would say holistic in nature and cancer is way way far away it's not it's not even near to them so uh obesity uh i don't know malnutrition all these things they don't affect them because they are consuming these wild uh, plants on a daily basis and also you know working towards that Uh, harvesting a plant is not an easy easy job like you need to climb the trees you need to pluck them you need to go to the forest identify it and there is something called slow food happening in today's world this movement called slow food they have been doing slow food for a long time where they are so much involved in processing the food like processing it they use various tools to process it overnight uh, cooking overnight or sometimes there are hours that they spend cooking so much of energy put in so they are far away from health hazards like cancer and things like that so i'm happy they are and i hope that they continue to and i really hope that their wisdom inspires the world to follow such a lifestyle close to nature and plants so that all of us can live a hundred years and tell these stories to our children and grandchildren you know I appreciate you sharing that and I appreciate you sharing your work with the world, sharing your work with my listeners. I'm glad that I have a lifelong colleague and a friend and I look forward to talking again and I'm definitely going to check out your webinar. So thank you so much for your time and energy and I wish you well. Thank you so much again for having me. I'm always up for chatting about plants uh, because Uh, I believe that this is how knowledge evolved when uh, two plant lovers uh, get together. We sort of are adding a little bit towards that so that it continues uh, this love and enthusiasm and passion towards nature and plant continues. So thank you, first of all, for the opportunity for having me here. 
Thank you to your listeners for patiently listening to me. And I hope that I made a little bit of sense to the plant world. And like I said, they are, they are more than welcome to get in touch with me. I would really encourage them to uh, start their stories with their own plants. And I can't wait to hear their stories too, which is what I'm more excited about. Yes, that plant connection. Yeah. Yeah. Just remember that plant that you see in your yard has a story to tell you. Has a story to tell you. Yeah, exactly. Has a story to tell you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again, Nishant. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much. Wow. That was an episode steeped in so much wisdom. Nishant is such a beautiful soul. And I know he's going to keep doing wonderful work. I hope you got some gold nuggets from this episode, and now it is time to go connect with the plants. Be well.